Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Welcome back to the Gay Buddhist Fellowship. Our tradition is to uh, go around and introduce ourselves first, uh, and then I'll introduce our speaker. Um, before we do, just by show of hands, anybody here after a long absence or new to GBF? Good. Oh. Yeah, uh, last week was the first time for a while. <laughs> okay. As we go around, we'll try and remember your name. Uh, I'm Tom. I'm Roger. I'm Joe. I'm Greg. I'm Sheldon. I'm Stennis. I'm David. My name's Cass. I'm Brad. My name is Ray. My name is Matthew. Larry. David. My name is Jeff. I'm Jerry. Don. Scott. Jay. Peter. My name is Mark. Uh, my name is Harley. I'm Hal. Jim. Grisha. My name is David. Ted. Wonderful. Welcome, everyone. Our speaker today is Prasada Chita Dharmachari. As an ordained member of the Chiratna Buddhist community, Prasada Chita teaches meditation, yoga, and Buddhism at the San Francisco Buddhist Center, right here. Uh, his practice and teaching grows out of a valuing of friendship and community. He's interested in the Buddhist theories and poetic expressions that communicate links between lofty ideals and our ordinary life. He's also a photographer and aspiring filmmaker. Prasada Chita. Thank you, Tom. <clears throat> Very happy to be here. Uh, it's a really great opportunity that I hope all of you get at some point to sit in front of a bunch of people and share. Uh, creates a certain energy. Um, I'm coming to appreciate more as time goes on, mostly naming... Uh, nervous to the point of feeling incredibly uncomfortable until probably just recently. Um, but I value it a great deal. And whatever I'm going to say today, um, I was thinking I want to, you know, I'm really just sharing, I'm trying to share threads of practice that I'm working with or things that I find um, helpful and meaningful. Um, in, in my personal Buddhist practice. Um, and, you know, maybe there'll be a little bit of advice in there, but mostly I'm not really advice-driven as much as just a, kind of having a sense of sharing. And uh, I'll also be um, teaching mainly, or speaking mainly, uh, about and from a particular Buddhist text called the Karyana Met. Metta Sutta, which is the Discourse on Loving Kindness, um, which I, is uh, um, 
very meaningful guided practice for me, and I'll share why. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not a Pali or Buddhist scholar, but I have read and digested a lot of Buddhist texts over a period of time, and uh, I have memorized this particular sutta in Pali, and at one point I will chant it for you. And the reason for that is I've got three translations here, and all the translations kind of convey a little bit of a different thing, I find. And even though I don't speak this ancient language, I have this sense that none of the translations does it perfect justice, so that while I'm ingesting all of those different translations, there's something about chanting it in the ancient language that synthesizes them all together for me in some way. Not only synthesizes my literal understanding of all the different texts that I've read, but also synthesizes or brings together all of my practice of contemplation over time and meditation in a way that it's almost, I find it helpful that I don't know Pali, you might say, because uh, this text sort of brings back, kind of the memorization of it brings back my experience of it over time and um, kind of also looks forward towards potential exploration of it in the future, you might say. So, um, so I'm not a scholar. Uh, I'm just going to share my digestion of this particular teaching. And I'm going to start by sharing um, something from somebody who uh, is a scholar, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who um, translates uh, a lot of Buddhist texts. And this is a text that is not the Sutta on Loving Kindness, but gives us a sense of the place of kindness. I mean, you may have all heard at some point that um, uh, the Dalai Lama say, you know, my religion is kindness. And um, I've come to find that um, through my study, I, there's a lot of truth to that, that, un, that it is, you know, some people might say that the central teaching of Buddhism is impermanence. Um, but others might say it's just kindness. And uh, I'm going to read this text, and it seems to be kindness from this particular text. It speaks about the development of loving kindness. And um, as a background, one of the things, um, this is the Buddha's words uh, as recorded in these ancient texts. And uh, something he says in here as a background before I start is he talks about making merit productive of, of a future rebirth. So he's really just talking about... Um, the understanding that if you um, act well in life, it will have a good result, whether it's in this life or the next, which is the Buddhist traditional understanding. So that's the background. So he says, Bhikkhus, whatever grounds there are for making merit productive of a future birth, all these do not equal a sixteenth part of the liberation of mind by loving kindness. The liberation of mind by loving kindness surpasses them and shines forth bright and brilliant. Just as the radiance of all the stars does not equal a sixteenth part of the moon's radiance, but the moon's radiance, <coughs> radiance surpasses them and shines forth bright and brilliant, even so, whatever grounds there are for making merit productive of a future birth, all these do not equal a sixteenth part of the liberation of mind by loving kindness. 
The liberation of mind by loving kindness surpasses them all and shines forth bright and brilliant. Just as in the last month of the rainy season, in the autumn, when the sky is clear and free of clouds, the sun on ascending dispels the darkness of space and shines forth bright and brilliant, even so, whatever grounds there are for making merit productive of a future birth, all these do not equal a sixteenth part of the liberation of mind by loving kindness. The liberation of mind by loving kindness surpasses them and shines forth bright and brilliant. And just as the night at the moment of dawn, the morning star shines forth bright and brilliant, even so, whatever grounds there are for making merit productive of a future birth, all these do not equal a sixteenth part of the liberation of mind by loving kindness. The liberation of mind by loving kindness surpasses them and shines forth bright and brilliant. So, there is some talk in Buddhist circles of um, what the place of cultivating kindness or a warm heart has, like what its place is in Buddhist practice. And I, I think that this particular statement by the Buddha does give some sense of its place. Um, it is, its place is central. And the liberation of the heart in loving kindness shines forth greater than any other kind of merit you might produce. And I think just calling it liberation places it pretty high because there is a, a saying that the Buddha's teaching has um, one taste, and it's the taste of liberation. So um, I will now read um, my particular favorite translation of the Metta Sutta. Um, it's uh, <clears throat> this sutta is given a context in traditional text and I think it's a later addition because um, later practitioners like to kind of create a little context but maybe it is the actual context of um, when the Buddha taught this <clears throat> but I think more likely from my understanding it's more like a kind of um, a little. It's like a poem or tune or uh, uh, yeah. It's like a teaching that was probably passed on from practitioner to practitioner and didn't really have a context. Um, but the context is this, and I like the context as well. That. Um, a bunch of uh, the Buddha's disciples were sent in. He were sent into this forest to meditate, and uh, they were meditating there. And they had an experience of the local tree spirits causing them a lot of problems. Like apparently, the tree spirits weren't really sure they wanted these uh, monks hanging out in their forest, <laughs> and um, they would do things like create terrible smells. Um, just create basic disease in these monks. And so the monks left and came back to the Buddha, and the Buddha said, no, you must go back, but when you go back, um, do this. And apparently this was the context of the sutta. So I will read it. If you know what is truly good for you and understand the possibility of reaching a state of perfect peace, 
then this is how you need to live. Start as a capable person who's upright, really upright, gently spoken, flexible, and not conceited. Then become contented and happy with few worries and an uncomplicated life. Make sure your sense experience is calm and controlled and be duly respectful and don't hanker after families or groups. And avoid doing anything unworthy that wiser people would criticize. Then meditate like this. May all beings be happy and secure. May all beings become happy in their heart of hearts and think of every living thing without exception, the weak and the strong, from the smallest to the largest, whether you see them or not, living nearby or far away, beings living now or yet to arise, may all beings become happy in their heart of hearts. May no one deceive or look down on anyone, anywhere, for any reason, whether through feeling angry or through reacting to someone else. May no one want another to suffer. As strongly as a mother, perhaps risking her life, cherishes her child, her only child, develop an unlimited heart for all beings, develop an unlimited heart of friendliness for the entire universe, sending metta above, below, and all around, beyond all narrowness, beyond all rivalry, beyond all hatred. Whether you are staying in one place or traveling, sitting down or in bed, in all your waking hours, rest in this mindfulness, which is known as like living in heaven right here and now. In this way, you will come to let go of views, be spontaneously ethical, and have perfect insight, and leaving behind craving for sense pleasures from the rounds of rebirth, you will finally be completely free. So um, the Buddha's teaching, um, one of the simplest ways of dividing it into three categories is to say that um, there is conduct, cultivation, and wisdom. And um, what I love about this sutta is it has all three revolving around loving kindness as the goal. In the first part, um, it begins with a statement, a statement like, that's like an invitation. Um, different translations have it different ways. Like, um, let's see, I have one that says, for example, this is what is done by one who is skilled in what is good, who reaches towards that most perfect state. Another one says, the way for one who is skilled in what is beautiful, who understands the path to perfect peace. So what it's saying is, if you want to be happy, if you are a person who has a vision of wholesome happiness, this is how you need to, to pursue that vision. So it's not an imposition upon you. It's an invitation on the basis of the desire for happiness. This is critical to Buddhist teaching in general. 
that it's an invitation on the basis of your own seeking for well-being. Um, you, I'm not familiar with a lot of other religious, religious traditions, but my understanding is that often the tone is one of authority from the outside, that you should be like this. But the Buddhist teaching is very specific in the sense that it's for you to take or leave, but if you want to be happy, this is the recommendation from somebody who is supremely happy. That's the primary crux of becoming a Buddhist. Oh, you're supremely happy, supremely liberated. What's your recommendation on getting there? There is no other outside sort of um, structure for the, for the teaching other than that. It's, it's like, you might even say it's as prosaic as one happy friend's advice to another. Yeah. So then it goes on to simply say that um, there is a way of living, a way of conducting your life that's conducive um, to these recommendations. Uh, you know, be flexible, easily, um, easily contented. Well, that's easier said than done, but I do know that in my own life, um, I every day am trying to cultivate uh, a, a, a pattern of living, a pattern of conducting my own life that means that wherever I go, I'm a little bit more likely to be happy, right? So, for example, um, I like to read the news in the morning, but I don't always have that with me. So one of my undertakings is to not need that to be happy, which means when I go on retreat, I understand that the framework of what I'm doing is helpful for me to be liberated from the need to consume information in the morning as I drink my coffee. It's that simple. It's an undertaking. All of these things are an undertaking. If you take it on as a something you should do, we should all, we should all, if we want to be happy, try to avoid being full of should. So that we have to always start again. If I would like to be happy, it would be nice not to need this thing every morning. So that's what it means to be flexible and easily contented. If you're a person who just needs your food just so, well, that's um, one level of not being easily contented that you could work with because life will throw you a curveball and you will not have that food. So if you want to be happy, be easily contented. And um, a lot of this, uh, these recommendations have to do with that. There's also this notion of not hankering after families or groups. And, um, you know, that's why it can be helpful to go on solitary, um, just to be by yourself for a while, to learn how to be happy in your own heart, in your own space, without other people's influence. You might also find that there's a certain amount of turmoil with regard to groups. I do. Um, with regard to approval, with, with regard to your place in a certain group. Um, I have to say, one of the things I enjoy about coming to the GBF is that I'm quite involved in this center, and I do a lot of teaching here, but it's lovely, actually, to come sit with you all, and I don't have any role here. So it's just kind of a lovely space to be with other people and not be the person who's on the council and 
has a role. Do you know what I mean? So I pursue, I pursue that kind of situation. It's a creative enterprise, this kind of uh, cultivation. So it's going to be personal. But, you know, if you find yourself, I, I do find myself rather ensconced in a group. And I think, oh, what can I do to kind of loosen that up? Oh, well, go practice with another group and just sit with them for a while. That'd be nice. It, it does work, at least for now. So um, there's this other thing of avoiding doing anything unworthy that wiser people would criticize. So there's some element of this conduct, this way of conducting your life that is open and receptive to the wisdom of others. I think this is critical. So it's not just that you're in this bubble of wisdom of your own, but you're, you actually live a life where you're looking towards others. And everybody, you know, this is speaking of specific wisdom, wise people. In this instance, maybe the Buddha or other um, bhikkhus. But I think generally for us, um, there's a lot of wisdom around us. And we don't have to... Uh, we can know that, well, that guy's not so wise, but, um, you know, anybody, even the most seemingly unwise people might have something valuable to say at any given time. And I think it's a kind of disposition to be, av to be available and open to other people's thoughts about who you are and what you are, rather than judging the value of somebody's input before they even give it. So I think of this as a kind of disposition where we live, in, we live in the world in a way that we're receptive to the wisdom of others and also looking specifically for helpful wisdom. And then within that context, asking yourself, it, would somebody who's wise think that the conduct that I'm doing right now is less than conducive to happiness? That might be helpful for you. So then meditate like this. So that's the, the whole kind of sphere of describing conduct. And that's uh, traditionally in Buddhism, that's like the foundation. And it's not so much the foundation because it's the most important as much as that sort of temporally, if you're conducting yourself in a way that's causing a lot of distraction, a lot of, um, a lot of inflexibility, you're going to be so kind of bound up in the, in the um, particulars of your life that are causing you unhappiness that you won't have necessarily the space to cultivate your mind. So sometimes just going on retreat, just getting out of the space that you're in, all the complications that you're in, sometimes can just kind of open the way to just give you space to cultivate your mind. I have noticed, and this, my experience in the past was that actually it created a lot of complications initially, because when I went on retreat, I was subjected to all the inflexibility that I had. But over time, I actually learned to be flexible, and then I was able to cultivate my mind. Um, so it is an interesting thing that Conduct, And you could just say going on retreat is a form of conduct. Taking on the structure of a retreat is a form of conduct. Just coming here and sitting all of you, like you're all sitting one direction looking at this way, that's a form of conduct. We're all sort of becoming receptive to Prasada Chitta here today. And um, here we are. Now, um, hopefully, within that space, we're also going to be cultivating loving kindness this evening. Maybe we're already doing it right now. 
So we meditate like this. May all beings be happy and secure. May all beings become happy in their heart of hearts. So happiness is an idea. Wishing happiness is an idea. And um, the thing about cultivation is taking an idea and making it real. Making it more than just an idea. So meditation, and one, one of its literal translations is actually cultivation, or bhavana. Um, it's, uh, um, in ancient Buddhist teachings, there's a word called jhana, which is also associated with meditation, but that's usually, that's actually the meditative state. Bhavana is actually the process of cultivating that state. And it literally means cultivation the way a farmer cultivates a field. And I think this is the best approach to meditation is to think of it in this way, is to think of it as cultivation. And the first thing about this cultivation is, is it's not just a thought. It is a thought. May all beings be well. May all beings be happy. But we are so much more than our thoughts. So much more. Um, sometimes I feel like that should go without saying, and then I find out that actually we need to talk about it more. Um, our body holds our entire disposition right now. It's not a thought. Our disposition includes the way we feel at the base of our belly, behind our heart, between our shoulder blades, right up above our shoulders, between our ears, the tension we're holding between our eyes. All of this is our disposition. We are not our thoughts. So we are cultivating something in our bodies that is the wish for loving kindness. And it's to be discovered as much as cultivated, you might say. So we might think we know what wishing others loving kindness is, but this invitation that the Buddha is giving us is more of a process of exploration, uh, exploring the potential of what embodied well-wishing might feel like, what embodied benevolence might feel like. Um, so later on in the sutta, he says, as strongly as a mother perhaps risking her life, cherishing, cherishes her child, her only child, developed an unlimited heart for all beings. Wow, that's not an idea. I don't know um, what your relationship with your mother is, but when my mother would break the car, she would do this. She would reach over, and I could feel her arm shaking with a desire. And I had my seatbelt on. It was just something that she would do. My mom was a very high-strung driver, so... <laughs> I mean, you know, I think um, this is just an example. I, I'm sure, you know, some people's mother might be, mo mothers might be much more laid back, and that's fine too. They still care about you, but this is just something that I remember. I just remember my mom just being like, you know, and um, she wanted to protect my well-being so intensely that it was, an, it was a spontaneous movement of her body, not really an idea. She didn't, she moved faster than a thought could possibly operate and um, I think when we're meditating 
And we just say, may you be well, may you be happy, may all beings be well, may all beings be happy. We are looking for a kind of subtle, at least to start with resonance with all beings that we can feel somewhere in our body. And maybe it spreads. And importantly, it does start with ourselves. So one of my um, meditation teachers uh, who helped found this center, Paramananda, I don't know if any of you have ever met him. He used to live here. Um, says this, the basis of metta, or loving kindness, is this sort of concern towards ourselves. Okay, so first I'm just going to say it's this concern for, towards ourselves. So just like my mother would reach over and brace me for any quick stop in the car, it's that towards yourself. So you could say that just flinching is an act of loving kindness for yourself. So you might be the kind of person who thinks, oh, I don't love myself much. But when a loud bang goes off and you jump, that's your loving kindness. Your loving kindness is visceral. It's not an idea. It's not a thought. You have it. You just need to recognize it. When you get hungry, it's loving kindness. When you flinch, it's loving kindness. When you put a hat on to keep the sun off of you, it's loving kindness. When you fidget a little bit on your cushion because you're a little uncomfortable, it's loving kindness. It's there, it's visceral, you need only recognize it as being the case. And as with anything we recognize, to recognize it brings it stronger, brings it more. Anything you bring awareness to tends to come into more being, becomes more real. So he says, we have to want to be happy. Our happiness has to be based on love towards ourselves. For if it is dependent upon the love coming to us from others, it will sooner or later break down. We have to learn to like ourselves for what we are, not in comparison to others. When we have positive feelings towards ourselves, it becomes much easier then to like others. We are not threatened by them. We wish them to be happy as well. So, I, there's two things going on here. Parmanita is saying, um, we have to learn to love ourselves. And I'm here to tell you that you do love yourself. So, you were gonna, you're going to get both statements from people. You're going to say, well, first you need to learn to love yourself. And I would tell you, you already do love yourself, you just don't recognize it. So, really all you need to do is viscerally feel that you do love yourself. And recognize that every little pleasure in your body, every little discomfort in your body, is concurrent with loving kindness. Now, you may not be acting in a way that's actually conducive to your happiness, the way we would hope loving kindness is, but that, to me, usually is just because of a discontinuity of awareness. You're not actually remembering how much unhappiness maybe certain behaviors are causing you. But um, it doesn't mean you don't love yourself. So um, you might have ideas that represent not loving yourself. Those are just ideas, Confu confused ideas. Another thing Paramananda says is this. Speaking of confused ideas, <clears throat> so... 
you could say that any kind of talking about yourself in a way that's harsh or not loving is a kind of delusion. Because as I've just pointed out to you, you do love yourself. So here, listen to this. If you speak delusions, everything becomes a delusion. If you speak the truth, everything becomes the truth. Outside of the truth, there is no delusion. Outside of the truth, there is no delusion. Yes, if you recognize that you love yourself, there is no delusion. There's just the recognition that you love yourself. And as I said, that's visceral. But outside of delusion, there is no special truth. There's no special truth outside of delusion. So recognizing that you love yourself is true. And outside of the lack of recognizing that, there is no special truth. Followers of the Buddha's way, why do you so earnestly seek the truth in distant places? Look for delusion in truth in the bottom of your own heart. So let's go back to the Buddha's imploring us to cultivate loving kindness. If we can recognize the loving kindness that we have for ourselves, we can also recognize that all the other beings have something very similar to this for themselves, if not exactly the same. So the Buddha says, think of every living being without exception the weak, the strong, the smallest to the largest, whether you can see them or not, living nearby or far away. <clears throat> May no one deceive or look down on anyone, anywhere, for any reason. Deception is suffering, right? So, whether through feeling angry or through acting to someone else, may no one want another to suffer. One, of the, one thought I had about um, this, uh, this idea of loving kindness and recognizing that you actually do love yourself, I find this incredibly moving because I forget that I basically forget moment after moment after moment that I love myself. And I can sit in meditation and remember relatively quickly, and it's something that I've learned over time. My recollection that I love myself is not really an ordinary recollection. It's actually the kind of embodied remembering, the way you kind of remember something, like a deja vu almost. You can feel that your body's been taking care of you all day when you haven't been paying attention, or even all night when you've been having nightmares. Your heart's been beating, your breath's been going. You've even been moving your body a little bit at night. I do, I move a lot when I sleep. And I know that um, if I take, for example, when um, I had a surgery, I took a lot of opiates, and I noticed that um, I wasn't moving at night on the opiates, and I would wake up incredibly sore. <laughs> yeah? And I, what I gathered from that, this was what I gathered from that, is actually that my body moves at night to keep me limber, so that when I wake up in the morning, I'm not too sore. Anyway, these are all things I recognize that my body, it's like, I feel like it's another being down here taking care of me. And um, so all of the manifestations of what we could call loving kindness have infinite variation throughout my body and mind. 
but one specific flavor. And I referred to this earlier. It's the flavor of liberation. The flavor of liberation, and that's the flavor of moving away from suffering. The flavor of the liberation of suffering. Um, and that's very difficult for us because I'm going to move on to the next part of the sutta where the Buddha, the Buddha says um, whether you are staying in one place or traveling sitting down or in bed in all your waking hours rest in this mindfulness which is known as like living in heaven right here and now so regardless of how uncomfortable you might be where you are, what you need to do. The Buddha is saying that, no, that all of the shades of your experience can still include this disposition, this disposition towards kindness. So that's hard for us because we associate things with particularities. We, if we can describe it, it has a corresponding specific experience. So loving kindness must be some specific experience. And then we get all kinds of ideas about how we can get that specific experience, how we can make it more common, whatever. And those are all just views. Those are all just ideas that describe our lives, describe what loving kindness should be. But the Buddha is basically saying here, it's not a particular experience. It's whether you're lying down, standing up, doing the dishes, getting yelled at by your partner, whatever. Stuck in traffic, that's one people like to talk about. So how is it that we can rest in heaven right here and now in whatever experience we're having? I think that's what we're being implored to do. In this way, you will come to let go of views, be spontaneously ethical, and have perfect insight. So the idea of views... Um, views are a lot of things, but views are who am I as compared to you? How was that experience I was having 10 minutes ago compared to the experience I'm having now? I think that loving kindness has infinite potential, which means that whatever experience you're having at any given time has a flavor of loving kindness. It has the flavor of liberation and it has the specific flavor of whatever that event is for you in that moment. So we have to let go of views because it's views that actually trap us in the patterns that we're in. Views are who am I, what did I do in the past that made this event successful? Um, it could be any number of things. I was thinking about um, early on, before I was a Buddhist, I thought I would tell this story. Um, before I was a Buddhist, I... Uh, had this experience of thinking about my father and my mother who were separated and how much my mother hated my father. I grew up with my mother and um, I, I was meditating, even though I didn't know what meditation was at that time. In retrospect, I was meditating. And I had this experience of not being able to judge my mother or father. And this... I, I had some part of my mother in me always hating my father. So we all have different life stories. But in this particular event, this was something, this was a view 
that was constantly dominating my happiness as a child. I was about 17 at the time, so not really a child. But um, I always uh, wanted my father's approval, but also was judging him for leaving us, for being a drug addict, for various things like that. And I had enough time and space to think about it that I realized that my father, A, wanted to be happy, B, wanted my love, um, and that my mother wanted to be happy, and she also wanted my love. And I, all of a sudden, somehow emotionally, not cognitively, but emotionally saw that it couldn't be any other way, that I couldn't blame my mother or father for all the difficulty that I had gone through. In some way, I just let go of all my views in that moment. And it was really hard because uh, it was really hard because it was the whole construct of how I related to my father that I was waiting for him to be a better person. Um, I'm not sure if this is a good description, but I think we all have some kind of construct that comes out of our childhood often, or somebody gave us about how we think about ourselves in the world and who's to blame for our happiness and who can help us become happier, whether it's ourselves or others. So I have this idea that this notion of letting go of views has to do with setting aside the structures, the thoughts we have about blaming other people about where we're at, whether it's government people or parents people or um, the judgments of others. Those are all views and you can just let them go and not let loving kindness be contingent upon your views. This is what this is about. Loving kindness needs no views. It can be completely free. Views can arise, but your recognition of the centrality and value of loving kindness needs no views whatsoever. And when you recognize that, you're free in that moment to love. Let's see. When do I, when do I stop? Um, give another 10 minutes. Okay. So I'm going to end with two things. One is a poem by Naomi Nye called Kindness. And I think it expresses all these things. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers, eating maize and chicken, will stare out the window forever. Before you know the tender gravity of kindness, you must go where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road 
He must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up to sorrow. You must speak to it until your breath catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head above the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So um, I, I, I thought I would like to do with all of you is chant, may all beings be happy and may all beings be well together. Um, this is, uh, we'll just do this for a little bit. It's a round, you know, like row, row, row your boat. So I'm hoping that some of you just spontaneously switch switch, but we'll start going together and then those of you who understand what a round is can switch. So we'll see if this can work. I'm going to do it and then you guys can join in if you like. So this is um, Pali, but the literal meaning is may all beings be well, may all beings be happy in their heart of hearts. Sabe sata suki hantu Sabe sata suki hantu Sabe sata suki hantu Sabe sata suki hantu Same sata sugi hantu. Same sata sugi hantu. Same sata sugi hantu. Same sata. Sabe sata suki hantu. Sabe sata suki hantu. Sabe sata suki hantu. Sabe sata. 
well as I thought. <laughs> it's okay. Sometimes you separate the room in half. So why don't we start with everybody on this side of the room. What's your name? Larry. Starting with Larry over. We'll start. And then from Larry, everybody on left of Larry um, will go the other way. Do the two phrases differ? Towards yes. The it seems like you're only saying the first one. Well, I tried to switch to the other. Uh, and we did bad. Yeah. So it's, it goes up, and then it goes down. So we'll start with Larry on this side of the room, and then we'll, this side we'll, we'll wait. Save sata suki hantu Save sata just chant the Pali version of this uh, particular sutta um, and we'll be done I suppose
Unless we should do questions. I think. Okay, good. Karaniya na atakusalena yam tam santam param abhisamecha sako uju chasu juhucha suva chocha samudu anatimani santu sako chasubarocha Apaki chochasala hukabuti Santu sako chasubarocha Apaki chochasala hukabuti Nachakudam samachare kinchi Yenavinu pare upavade yum Sukinova Kemino hantu sabe satabavantu sukitata ye kechipana butati tasavatavara vanavasesa digavaye mahantava majimaraseka anukatula Dita vayeva aditaye chadureva santi avidure Bhutava sambhave siva sabe satabhavantu sukitata Naparoparang nikubeta Nati manyeta katachinam kanchi Vyarosana patika sanya Nyana manyasa dukamicheya Matayata niyambhutam Ayesa eka putamurarakehi Metam chasabalukasmim Amanya sambhavaye aparimanyam Udam ado chatriyancha asavaram avarmasapatam Titam charam nisinova sayanovayavata savigatamido Etam satim aditeya Brahmam etam viharam idam ahu Ditancha anapadama Silavadasanena sampano Kamesu vinayagedam Nahijatu gabiseyam punareti Ti namo buddhaya Namo dharmaya Namo Sankhaya, Namo Nama Om Ahum. Thank you. Next week our speaker will be Anilia Gonzalez. He began his Tai Chi and Qigong practice in 1973 with Grandmaster Kai Yang Tang.
and he still studies with him today. For over 40 years, he has taught classes in Northern California and conducted workshops for many organizations. Um, in the past, when he's been with us, he has uh, both spoken and led us in movement. So uh, perhaps we can expect a similar mix. It's always very rich, good change out for us. Um, announcements are. Uh, our song is sustained by uh, generosity and giving, so uh, the Donna Bowl is out there and our host will come around with it. Uh, suggested donation is 8 to $10, but whatever you're comfortable with is most welcome. Uh, and our host today, Jim Stewart. Welcome, everybody. Um, thank you, Scott Tisha. That was just great. That was so um, Yes, Donna Bowl, I will be the Scylla and Charybdis in the outer room. You shall not pass. A gesture towards the Donnable in this uh, time of um, confusion, let's let our abundance flow. Uh, there's hot water, already ready for tea. Um, you can leave your cups in the sink. Um, there are snacks out there, fruit and assorted treats. Um, there's a sign-up sheet on this um, wall. <laughs> um, if you want to uh, join our uh, database and receive announcements, newsletters possibly. Um, and generally, uh, around 12.30, there's some people who would like to go out to lunch and meet at the door. Um, so feel free to join them. Am I forgetting anything? I don't think so. The cups. Huh? The cups. The cups. We have the cups in the sink. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Very good. Um, there are some free books out there. Um, anthology of short writings from some of our song members as well as others. Uh, so those are on the table. There's also an article there on Paul Connolly, uh, his obituary. Um, in case you're interested in that, uh, he had a very prolific and rich life that touched many of us. So, uh, that's there. Any other announcements? Then why don't we gather in a circle for a dedication? truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness, which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity, without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.